good to see you all this morning. I'm excited to dive into God's Word, but at the same time also feeling His need for help. So let's pray and ask for it this morning, shall we? Lord Jesus, we come before your throne this morning and ask that you would bless this time in your word. Lord, we know that no good will come apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. Feeling my own inadequacy, Lord, we look to your word, which never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. God, you are the one who makes us sufficient to show that the power belongs to you. So God, we ask that you'd work today, you'd strengthen our faith, and that you'd be glorified as a result of your word and your work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you know I was a pharmacist before I became a pastor, and I had a lot of responsibilities as a pharmacist, but my main job Uh, was actually protecting patients, making sure that they got the right drug at the right dosage with the right directions and making sure that there weren't any uh, interactions between any of their medications. And it's a huge responsibility. One mistake could cause uh, serious injury. Uh, One of the things that frustrated me as a pharmacist was when uh, my boss would give us a task or a job, but then not the tools or the authority to carry it out. So you could imagine as a pharmacist being uh, responsible for a team of, of technicians, but then not being given the authority to address issues when they arise. Super frustrating. But on the flip side, whenever the management did uh, give us a job, and give us the, the, the tools and the authority uh, to do that job. It didn't make the job easy, but it did give us confidence knowing that we had everything that we needed to do the job. In a similar way, children get frustrated when their parents expect them to do something that they haven't been given the tools or the training to accomplish. If I don't equip my kids to do a job and then I get upset with them for not doing what I ask them to do, that frustrates them. It's like being told to wash the laundry without soap. You, You don't have what it takes. But God is not like that frustrating boss or parent. God doesn't ask us to resist the devil or to avoid sin or to obey his commands without also giving us the power to do those things. Paul, in his prayer to the Ephesians, he wants Christians to know the great power of God for us in Christ. A power that is already ours in Christ, already at work. And while that doesn't make following God easy, it does give us confidence that we have everything that we need in Christ to do all that God asks us to do. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 19 through 23 today. We're looking at the second half of Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus here at the beginning of his letter. And just by way of review, you'll recall that Paul has been praying for God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that is in the knowledge of God. And he specifically wants God 
to help them to know three things about God, but this knowledge is a, it's a, it's a personal knowledge. So you can read in a book or be told that cinnamon rolls are delicious. That's head knowledge. But there's a personal knowledge when you eat them. You know that cinnamon rolls are delicious in the eating of them. That's what Paul is after here. He wants us to grasp these truths, but experience them in a personal way in our lives. That's what he's after here. And he wants them to know these three things, experience these three things about God. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward believers. Now, it's this last one, this third prayer, that Paul really wants Christians to grasp because he explains it further in this text. It's his emphasis in this prayer, and it's going to be our emphasis today. It's important to see here, though, that Paul is not asking for God to give them a fresh blessing. He's praying that God would open their eyes to grasp the full extent of the blessings that they already have, that they already possess in Christ. It's not just a prayer, either, that we would know that God is powerful but to rest in and to rely on that power for living the Christian life. So the message for us today is this. By the power of God displayed in Christ and dwelling in you, live the Christian life. Look to Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As Christians, we can only fight temptation and bear fruit in the strength of the Lord. We can only face earthly and heavenly opposition to us in the strength of the Lord. We can only endure afflictions and challenges in the strength of the Lord. That's why Paul wants us to grasp the immeasurable greatness of God's mighty power toward us who believe. And too often, we trust ourselves rather than God. And the Bible continually exposes our weakness, our neediness, yet at the same time points us to God's great strength and sufficiency. So by the power of God displayed in Christ and dwelling in you, live the Christian life. We're going to do this a little different today. We're going to unpack our text and then we'll draw three applications at the end. So first look at verse 19. Paul prays they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Paul is stacking up several terms for emphasis here. He wants to make it absolutely clear that God's power is unsurpassed. His power is incomparable. The greatness of God's power is beyond measure. And this addresses... Any rival claims to extraordinary power by those in Ephesus who were devoted to other gods. God's power is far greater. This was an an assurance for them, and it's an assurance for us as well. And notice how God's immeasurably great power is toward 
us who believe. That is, it's directed to us. It's for our benefit. It's on our behalf. God's power is for us who believe. And Paul isn't saying, by saying that, he's not saying it's for those who have enough faith, but that it's available for believers, for Christians. When Paul says us who believe, he's including himself and all believers without exception. And Paul doesn't just want us to know that God is powerful. He wants us to be awed by the exceeding, immeasurable greatness of his mighty power and to know that God works this power for us on our behalf. God's immeasurably great power is exactly what we need to live the Christian life. To say this another way, Paul's aim in this prayer is that we know God in such a way that we're victorious over sin and fruitful in this life by God's power. Then in verses 20 through 22, Paul explains how God demonstrates or demonstrated his surpassing power. God's power toward us is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. So what kind of power is it for us? Well, it's the same kind of power that God worked in Christ, verse 20. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in, in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. So Paul is marveling here at the power of God, which is demonstrated in three ways. By, his, by, by raising Christ from the dead, by his ascension and enthronement over evil, and by Christ's headship over all things for the church. God demonstrates his power in Christ in these three ways. Now, these verses, verses 20 to 23, they're the explanation of this last part of Paul's prayer for us to grasp the greatness of God's power for us. God's power raised Jesus and seated him in the heavenly places. But what does that have to do with us? Like, how is that power for us? If we look ahead to chapter 2, we see that exact same power is at work in us. God raised us from spiritual death to life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of doing anything, incapable of saving ourselves. But in Christ, God made us alive together with Christ, and he raised us with Christ. And it says he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Through our union with Christ then, his victory is our victory. In Christ, we have victory over our greatest enemies, sin and death and the devil. A man is mortal, we cannot escape death. And man is fallen, we cannot overcome sin. In Christ, God conquers both sin and death for us. So God demonstrates his power First, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Death is our bitter enemy. It's the last enemy. We can't stop it, let alone undo it. We cannot bring someone back from the dead. But God does that and more. Because God didn't just restore Jesus to life. He resurrected him to a whole new life. A whole new life 
way of living just as he does us. Jesus will never die again. And his resurrection then is the defeat of sin and death. Jesus came to redeem us. He died on the cross for, his sin, for our sins. But it's his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven that proves that God has accepted his atoning sacrifice for our sins. That proves he really is victorious over sin and death. That we have been forgiven of our sins and that we have life and salvation through faith in him. It's also proof that he reigns victorious, that sin and death and the devil have been defeated. Now, if we look at Romans 6, Paul is pointing us to our union with him and saying, look, you've died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ in order that you might walk in newness of life. See, when we think about our the resurrection of Christ from the dead and the fact that we have been raised with Christ, we almost always just think about our future life in heaven, which is true. It's glorious because he lives, we will live. Amen? But that's not the end of it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that we now live in this new life. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You're free, not only from the penalty of sin in Jesus Christ, but from the power of sin in Jesus Christ. The resurrection means power now for you to live the Christian life. So I want to I show you an example from Paul's life. Listen to how or watch how Paul reasons when he's in the middle of facing affliction. He reasons that if God can raise the dead, then God can strengthen him with whatever he faces, in whatever he faces. So he says to the church in Corinth, he says to the Christians, he says, we don't want you to be ignorant of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. Listen, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death now listen, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He relies on God's strength, not his own. He's reasoning like this. Look, if God can raise the dead, then God can help me in this affliction that I am facing. It gives him assurance, comfort, strength now. That's this resurrection power that you have in Christ. But God also demonstrates his power by seating Jesus Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus currently sits enthroned over all at God's right hand. To sit it at someone's right hand means to be in the place of highest honor and authority, power. This is fulfilling the messianic promise of Psalm 110, which we read a moment ago. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The apostles repeatedly point to this verse in the New Testament. Again and again, they come back to it to show that Jesus was exalted as the Christ, that he really is who he said he claimed to be. If Jesus stayed dead, that's it. 
right? But it's his resurrection and his ascension, his exaltation to sit at God's right hand that proves Jesus really is the Christ. Jesus rules as sovereign king over all. As verse 21 says, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And verse 22, God put all things in subjection under his feet. Sadly, the ESV leaves that verb untranslated. God's power is demonstrated by exalting Jesus over all other powers, earthly or spiritual. But the terms being used here, rule, authority, power, dominion, that refers to the spiritual forces of evil, as Paul is going to make clear in chapter 6. Then he adds that Jesus is above every name that is named. He says that because this relates, not just because it's true, but it addresses the situation in Ephesus. It relates to the magic arts where invoking the right name was how they harnessed the power of the gods. The point is this, Whatever name that anyone might use, the name of Jesus is greater. Whatever power they might seek, Jesus' power is greater. He exceeds them all. God has exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The spiritual forces of evil that we wrestle with have all been subjected to Christ. That is the point that Paul is making here. We live as Christians now in his power. As Paul is going to teach later, we stand against the schemes of the devil, not in ourselves, but in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. What this means is that the tyranny of sin and the devil is over. We've been set free from sin, free from its penalty and its power. We've forgiven and we have hope, encouragement, hope of victory over sin in our lives. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already won the victory. The resurrection and ascension means that no matter what powers threaten the church, there is one who is superior and nothing will prevail against Christ's church. So we see then the fullness of God's power for the church in verse 23. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul now comes back to his initial thought, the power of God for us who believe. Jesus here is being described as a gift. God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. That is, again, for the benefit of the church. And throughout Ephesians, the word church refers to the universal church. That is, everyone who has repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save them, who have believed in the gospel, Ephesians 1, 13 and 19. So Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. And the context makes it clear here that his headship means rule and authority. Just like we call somebody the head of state. Jesus is the head of the church. He's our king who rules and leads the church. And the church submits to Christ, our Lord, our king. 
The point is, is that Jesus is the head for the church's sake, for her benefit and good. His leadership is not self-serving. This metaphor is important. It'll be important later when Paul addresses marriage and the fact that a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, medical writers of Paul's day, they understood the head as ruling and guiding and empowering all of the body's activities. So Jesus as our head rules, directs, leads, empowers the church, his body, for its good. That's the thought of the metaphor here. And Paul is explaining that Jesus' head over all the forces of evil in the world, and it's in his power and victory that rests the promise of our power and victory. The church is filled by Christ, who is the fullness of God. The fullness of Christ means the presence and power of God for us. So there's a parallel passage to this last verse in Colossians that helps us understand this. It says, for in him, that's Jesus, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. He rules over all these evil powers and gives God, gives his people grace and strength, gives that strength to his church. So let me try to summarize what we've seen so far. God's power toward us is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And God's power is demonstrated in raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand, victorious and reigning over all other rule, power, and dominion. These were terms that the pagans used to refer to the power of their gods who they thought ruled their destiny and that of the nations. And that led people to fear them. But Paul prays that the Ephesians would know that God gave them Christ, victorious and reigning over all such powers. All spiritual forces of evil lie conquered beneath his feet. So they don't need to fear The great power that God worked in Christ to make him victorious over his enemies is the same power that God works on behalf of the church. Now, how do we apply this? Let me suggest three responses to this passage of God's word. First, adoration. Worship. Give thanks and praise to God for his power toward you in Christ. Jesus has been exalted to the place of highest honor. This is what Paul seems to do, even as he's teaching this. (laughs) He can't seem to teach this without at the same time worshiping. I mean, this is not dry academic teaching here. Yes, it's instruction, but it's simultaneously worship. It's both explanation and exaltation at the same time in the truth of God. And when our eyes, the eyes of our heart are open to grasp the greatness of God's immeasurably great power toward us in Christ, it leads us to adoration, to worship. What kind of king is Jesus for you? He's a shepherd king. Some kings rule for their own power or for for their own benefit, but not Jesus. His power is directed toward us who believe. He's given for the church, for our benefit. Jesus is a wise king. Some, Some rulers are fools without knowledge or vision, but not Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. Jesus 
is a gracious king. Some rulers are harsh and unforgiving, but not Jesus. In him, sin and death have been defeated. In him, you have forgiveness and life. And we're going to see why call him a gracious king. We're going to see in the very next chapter that this power toward us is all God's grace from beginning to end. It's grace that raised you with him. It's grace that seated you with him. He is a gracious king to us. And he is a mighty king. Some rulers are weak, they're incapable, but not Jesus. Jesus has been enthroned over all. He reigns victorious over all of our enemies. We find strength and grace in him. So this power in Christ to us should lead us to adoration, to worship. Second, allegiance. Jesus has been enthroned in heaven over all, and he's the head of the church. He rules and he leads. We submit to him. Jesus is the king of kings, and we owe him our complete allegiance, our humble submission, our obedience to him as our king. Listen, we do not make Jesus the king of our lives. Jesus is the king. We submit to him as such. Jesus is the king of your life. That means you are either in submission to him or rebellion against him. There is no in-between. Jesus is the king of your marriage and your family. Jesus is the king of the nations. Jesus is the king of spiritual forces of darkness. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Jesus is king. He directs our lives. We must obey his commands revealed in his word. God enthroned Jesus over all. Give him your allegiance. It's important here to see also that his kingdom spreads as the gospel spreads. As more and more people submit themselves to Jesus Christ, that is the way his kingdom spreads on earth. Third, then, relying. That is trusting and relying on God's strength. God's immeasurably great power is yours in Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Is this last point of relying that I think Paul stresses when he gets to the end in verse 23, and this is where I'm going to spend the majority of, of our application time. Jesus is head over all the forces of evil in the world. In his power and victory rests the promise of our power and victory. God gives us grace and strength in Jesus Christ. In Christ is the power for fighting sin and overcoming temptation. Power for strengthening your marriage, enabling you to forbear and forgive and to love and to serve and to thrive. In Christ is power to graciously disciple your children with patience and wisdom. Power to uphold and sustain you in, in affliction. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says this, and I wonder if we can say the same. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Do we say that? I don't think I say that. 
I want to say that. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong in the power of Christ. Amen? In Christ is the power to share the gospel. Paul tells us we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, that's us, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In Christ is the power to love and serve others, even your enemies. In short, in Christ is power to obey all God's commands. He gives you everything that you need to do everything that he asks. Now, none of this comes from you. If you hear that and you're thinking, feeling, I'm weak, I'm inadequate, it's because you are. You are inadequate. You are insufficient. The power doesn't come from you, but from Christ. You cannot do any of these things in your own strength. Christ has overcome sin and death and the devil, and we rest in and rely on God's power to live the Christian life. That's your hope. Right now, Christ is sufficient for every need that you have in your life. We are weak and needy, but God wants us to see his strength and sufficiency. God wants us to rely on him, not ourselves. And the question is, how do we trust and rely on God's power? How do we make use of God's power practically? It starts with knowing God's immeasurably immeasurably great power for us who believe. And the key then is, is... relying on and making use of God's power, the key is prayer. Even as Paul is doing in the midst of this passage, and he does it in other places as well, Paul is going to pray later in the letter in light of the gospel. He's going to pray in light of the gospel and what God has done, that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being so that Christ would dwell in them through faith, and that they'd be filled with the fullness of God. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 19. And then he says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Prayer is the key. We take everything to God in prayer, asking for his strength and grace in all situations. We look to God for everything, big and small. When I would pull up to the pharmacy for work, before I would go in, especially when I first became a pharmacist, I would cry out to God in prayer because I knew I didn't have what it takes to do the job. I was freaking out. God, I need your help. I need your help to do this. As a pastor, every time I go into a meeting, I'm crying out to God for help. Why? Because I'm inadequate. I don't have what it takes. And neither do you. We pray to God from a position of of weakness. We trust God and rely on him by prayer. Flip this around. A lack of prayer in your life suggests a self-sufficiency. It suggests, I got this. I can do this on my own. It's regular prayer that suggests that we are relying on God for everything that we need. 
Of course, prayer is only one means of grace. God imparts his grace and his power through his word, through worship, through the sacraments, through fellowship with his people. But prayer is this regular, ongoing dependence on God. I'm not saying here in this application on prayer that, that you should pray in the morning with your devotions. You should do that. This is the kind of prayer that we do all day long, all day, constantly relying on the Lord for everything that is in front of us. The Puritan Alexander Gross wrote this in his book, A True and Speedy Use of Christ. He says, Therefore the healthy man, as the healthy man makes use of his meat, his food, and is strengthened, the sick man makes use of medicine and is healed, The soldier makes use of his weapons and overcomes. The merchant makes use of his trade and grows rich by it. Thus let us make use of Christ that our souls may be healed, strengthened, made victorious, and spiritually enriched. Some men live by their intelligence, some by their lands, and some by their trades. The Christian lives by his Christ. It is foolish to look to other things to try to fill or strengthen us. It's like trying to use a lightning bug as a flashlight in the dark when you have the sun to guide you. It's like looking to a Nerf sword for your protection when you have a mighty fortress in your God. To rely on other things, to turn from Christ to these other things is foolish, but that's precisely what we are tempted to do. And we're tempted most to look to ourselves, to trust ourselves. Look to Christ. In Christ, there is fullness of wisdom to guide, fullness of power to defend, fullness of righteousness to justify, fullness of mercy to forgive, fullness of grace to endure, fullness of joy to satisfy, fullness of hope to encourage you. He's the fullness of God, of God's power for the church. And the one who learns to rely on him is truly blessed. God's power in Christ gives us victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. We would be taken captive by the world's philosophy, by empty deceit and human tradition, if it were not for Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is only by the Spirit that we put sin to death and bear fruit in our lives, like a branch that's disconnected from the vine, can't bear fruit. We can't bear fruit in our own strength, only in Christ. The devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour, and we would be devoured. Make no mistake, we'd be devoured if it were not for our shepherd who is far greater than him. It's only by the power of Christ that we can overcome the devil's temptations and deceptions and accusations. Now, In light of last week, and and since our text is focusing on Christ being over all the spiritual forces of darkness, I want to take just a moment and talk about spiritual warfare. Paul is going to say later in this letter, and we will unpack it in greater detail then, but he's going to say that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. We read about Satan's work in the New Testament, and this is a reminder that it's real. I want to say a couple things. One, we need to avoid a couple of errors. The first error that we need to avoid is overemphasizing Satan's work so that we become fearful. 
seeing demons behind everything, every rock and bush, so that we become afraid. The other mistake, though, is disregarding it, acting like spiritual evil is not really a thing, ignoring it. Demons are real, but we have no reason to fear them as believers, as Christians. We have nothing to fear because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. His power is greater. They have been subjected to him. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 3. As Christians then, we cannot be possessed by a demon. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Christ is in you and he is over all the powers in the heavens. So we're protected. Satan may attack us, tempt us, try to deceive us, accuse us. He can harass us in many ways and he does, but we are not powerless against him. We have all the power that we need to overcome him in Christ. Our power and victory are assured in Jesus. His victory is the source of ours, our hope over the darkness in our lives. It's our union with Christ that gives us this firm spiritual position, grounding authority from which to engage in spiritual warfare. So we don't need to fear, but we do need to take it seriously and to stand in the strength of the Lord. If you're being attacked, you feel as though you're being attacked, pray and ask God to help you in the name of Jesus. God, protect me. Give me the strength to resist the devil in Jesus' name. God, give me the strength to obey in Jesus' name. There is no formulaic prayer. That's not the point. Just pray in faith, relying on the power of God in Jesus Christ. And I find that it helps to pray specific truths from Scripture that address whatever temptation or deception that you're facing. So, for example, if you're being tempted to get angry, pray something like this. God, your word calls me to be slow to anger. Please give me the strength to be slow to anger, to be patient and kind. And the promises of God are useful when Satan comes and accuses us. Twice in the New Testament, we're told to resist the devil. Once, we're told to resist by submitting ourselves to God and drawing near to God in purity, James 4, 7, and 8. And once, by standing firm in our faith, 1 Peter 5, 9. That's this text in Ephesians, relying on God, standing firm in our faith. Now, we'll dig into that subject more in Ephesians 6. Psalm 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The psalm teaches the same truth in a slightly different way. The psalm isn't condemning hard work here, and neither is Ephesians. To say that we rely on God's power doesn't mean that we have nothing to do. It doesn't mean that following Christ is easy. It doesn't mean that we don't labor, but we do it relying and depending on the Lord. What the psalm condemns is self-reliance. Instead of relying on ourselves, we rely on God. It condemns the idea, if we just stay up later, and we just get up earlier, and we just work harder, then we can achieve all of our goals. We can do what God wants us to do. No, that's not true. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
The house is your individual walk with the Lord. The house is your family and your marriage. The house is the church. Unless the Lord builds that house, we labor in vain. And when we rely on ourselves, it leads to anxious toil because we think it depends on us. We get stressed and anxious, worried because we think it's on us. But when we rely on the Lord, it leads to restful toil. There's peace, rest, and joy when we labor in the power of God. So we must make use of the fullness of Christ who fills us in every way. Later, Paul's going to teach us that God is able to do far more than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He's going to call us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Here, he prays that we grasp God's immeasurably great power. He anchors us in God's surpassing power, praying that we would know that power toward us in Christ. The power that raised Christ raised us with him. The power that seated Christ seated us with him. The power that put all things under his feet can put evil under our feet too. So give God your adoration and allegiance, your worship and submission, and rely on his power, especially by prayer asking in all things for the strength that you need. Let's pray. God, we praise you this morning. We praise you for your incomparably great power for us in Christ. We pray that you would fill us with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you and bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in our knowledge of you, God. We ask that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Enable us to face every earthly and spiritual challenge with your divine power. We ask that we would live in the strength of your might and that it would all be for your glory. We ask this and we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.